Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith. See jsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is Stephen Horwitz, the Distinguished Professor of Free Enterprise in the Department of Economics in the Miller College of Business at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. He is also the author of the 2015 book, Hayek's Modern Family, Classical Liberalism and the Evolution of Social Institutions, which is the main topic of today's conversation. So welcome to the show, Professor Horwitz. Thank you, Ari. I'm very happy to be here. And as you, I was just about to tell you that I'm working from home, so you might hear my dog. Just to start us off, for listeners who may have been living in Iraq, give us a thumbnail version of who is Friedrich Hayek and what is the Austrian School of Economics. Oh, the thumbnail version of both. Okay. Uh, Friedrich Hayek was a Nobel Prize winning economist. He was born uh, in 1899. He studied in Vienna, was a student of Ludwig von Mises, not in a formal sense, but certainly in the sense of learned a lot from him. Hayek, uh, from there, spent some time in the United States, spent some time, uh, again, back back in, in Europe, uh, and then ended up back in the United States in the 1950s. Hayek's uh, main contributions or, or sort of uh, rise to fame in the 1920s and 30s was over the two great debates in social science of that era. One was the debate with Keynes, which many people uh, know about, and certainly the hip-hop videos have popularized. Uh, and, and so on the macro side, macroeconomic side, debating Keynes and debating uh, what was going on with the Great Depression and so on was important. But he was also very much involved in the socialist calculation debate with uh, a number of socialist thinkers of the time, and Hayek and, and Mises and others trying to establish the claim that uh, rational calculation under socialism wasn't possible. Uh, interestingly, Hayek was perceived perceived to have lost both of those debates, kind of went into obscurity for a while, and then uh, was still writing and publishing, published arguably some of his best stuff in the 1940s and the Constitution of Liberty in 1960. Uh, and then uh, he wins the Nobel Prize uh, in 1974, and suddenly there is this uh, burst of interest in his work. And that's kind of where it hooks up with the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, the Austrian School was founded really in 1871 by uh, the economist Karl Menger in his book, The Principles of Economics. It took 20, 30 years before people recognized it as a kind of distinct approach to economics, but by the early 20th century, there was a clear Austrian school. Uh, the Austrian school uh, was known for subjectivism in value, for uh, thinking at the margin, think, both both of which, at least to some significant degree, are part of economics today. Uh, and then also uh, into the 1910s and 20s, uh, Mises in particular developed a business cycle theory, and that became part of the Austrian school. And I think what happened is, uh, again, the Austrian perspective was was perceived to have lost those debates in the 30s. But Mises's work and Hayek's work in the in the 30s and 40s uh, resuscitated those ideas. Not just resuscitated, expanded them and made them clearer and better. And really, uh, by by the late 1940s, there were very few Austrians, but a more defined Austrian school. And then by again by 1974. Hayek wins the Nobel Prize, 
Israel Kirzner publishes his book on competition and entrepreneurship a year before. Uh, there's a big conference for young graduate students. I mean, all these things come together in the mid-70s uh, and the failure of Keynesian economics. And the Austrian school since then has been on a steady and strong uh, revival. There seems to kind of be a libertarian Hayek and a conservative Hayek, depending on which works people are looking at. Indeed. Where the conservative is focusing more on road to serfdom and the conservative interpretation of spontaneous order and libertarians focusing more on free market stuff. Is that, does that seem accurate? I think that's fair. Um, and I think it's actually real. I, I'm not sure that Hayek, I'm not sure it's clear in Hayek, which he is, or, or, you know, it can change from, as you say, it can change from issue to issue. Um, I think there, I think there's a radical reading of Hayek where, where Hayek's ideas point beyond Hayek's sort of thought points beyond Hayek's own sort of policy conclusions. I can, there's one famous story about this that might be interesting. Uh, in the 80s, one of his last visits to the United States, he was out in California and hanging out with a group of then sort of graduate students, mostly economists, but names you'd all recognize now. They're chatting with him, and, uh, and someone asked about anarchism. And Hayek's answer was something like this. He said, look, I'm an old man. I can't, I can't think about anarchism. I've been brought up in a certain sort of way that the state, you know, classical liberalism and the state and all that. He says, but if I were a young man today, <laughs> if I, you know, if I were a young man today, I would find those ideas really fascinating. And I think there's a, there's a radical anarchistic Hayek that's in Hayek, but there is also a more conservative one. Uh, Hayek's emphasis on tradition, for example, I think you have to read really, really carefully. Well, I wanted to ask you a question about spontaneous order, so sure. this is a good time for that. So there seems to be, to my mind, there seems to be a tension here because libertarians want to say, want to praise spontaneous orders and point to the virtues of those. But I think there's a real sense in which all government institutions can be described as a sort of spontaneous order. And you can almost interpret public choice to be saying that. And so it seems like to describe some sorts of spontaneous orders as good and some as bad, you need some sort of normative foundation there. Yeah, I, this, this is, this is the, the, the heart of the matter with respect to spontaneous order. Uh, I, I think a couple comments I'd make. What spontaneous order says is that people pursuing their self-interest under the right set of institutions will produce social benefits. I mean, that's a very you know, unintended social benefits. That's a very simple definition. And we can come up with all kinds of examples of, of where, uh, where the, the, the consequences are, are bad and unintended, right? And, and uh, do we want to call those spontaneous orders? Probably. Do we want to say they're negative? Yes. And so we need, as you say, we need some way of identifying the consequences as being bad. What is it about? So, you know, just off the top of my head, right, you could say that the political process producing more larger and, 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 and uh, more powerful government is bad because governments don't do as well as markets do at uh, responding to error and helping people figure out 
helping people know they've made mistakes and figuring out what the right direction to go in is to, to correct those mistakes. So if you take that as your kind of, I don't know if you want to call that a normative standard, but if you want to say that's what good institutions should do is, is, detect, is to be able to detect error, provide actors with information and incentives to correct it, then it may be that other kinds of, you know, sort of not markets do that well. Non-market spontaneous orders may not do that as well. And that becomes a ground for saying, well, maybe they're not, you know, those consequences aren't as positive. Uh, I, do we still want to call them spontaneous orders? That's an interesting question. My friend Virgil Storr has done some interesting work on, on sort of how riots evolve and things like that, where you're looking at, 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 at very negative spontaneous orders. Well, let me just bring in an example from Colorado right now. So Republic, so right now, Democrats control our state government. Yep. But Republicans are running a bill to limit adoption by gay couples, which to my mind is crazy. Yeah. But I think conservatives would want to pull this spontaneous order card and say, well, look, you know, ma- this male-female marriage was the norm for most of human civilization, and this is what's developed, and so th- therefore this is how we should just basically keep doing things. Yeah. Um, but that's not at all what you're trying. Yeah, no, right, right. You and so, I yeah, think that's a dumb, dumb, right. dumb and, way to and I think I think that's, this is, you know, as we talk about Hayek, this is where it gets tricky because that on one reading, right? Okay, tradition, right? Hayek, but, but Hayek, Hayek uh, respects but does not revere tradition. And, and so the default position, I think, for a Hayekian is to, is to think that tradition has important knowledge in it and we should... We should look to tradition first, but that doesn't mean we have to bow down, right? And even Hayek says this, and he's and in fact he says it about not the not the marriage issue, but about homosexuality and about how we've treated it over the years. And he says he said when factual knowledge changes, our understanding of the consequences change, and and, and tradition looks different. Um, and so you know traditions were there often because of perceptions of harm that were being caused. And, you know, with, with the, today with the adoption issue and all that, right. Um, all you have to do is look at the data and say, there's, there's no harm there. Right. Uh, and, and if there's no harm there, the, the tradition, the old tradition was misplaced or misunderstood or something fundamentals changed in the 21st century compared to the 18th or 17th that has made this possible and non-damaging in a way it wouldn't have been a few hundred years ago. Well, there's something interesting about, about the timing of your book at 2015 and that it was kind of right in the middle of this, the huge debate over gay marriage. Well, so I'll you know, tell now you, we have a, yeah. you know, we have Pete Buttigieg running for president um, fairly successfully. And that's just amazing how fast that turned around. It is the proofs for the book arrived the day of the Obersfeld decision, which I thought was so poetic, right? Um, and, and especially, and this is sort of my second point, I've been teaching this family stuff for a long, long time uh, and sort of arguing with one degree or another of, 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 of force from, for, for uh, same-sex marriage really since the late 90s. And to be honest, I, ne- I didn't think I would see it this quickly. I knew it would happen, but I didn't think I'd see it this quickly. And I think the speed of that turnaround is, is fascinating and, and ought to give lots of social scientists 
uh, a lot of uh, data to look at and, and, and ideas uh, to look at as they think about dissertations and other things. What, what turned that so quickly? Um, I, I think I would say two things. One, uh, by 2015, almost everybody knew, had a gay or lesbian relative or close friend who was in a long-term relationship who you looked at and said, why, well, you know, why do we exclude them? I mean, they've been, they've been together longer than, than half the family has, right? Uh, well, you know, on what grounds do we exclude them? I know them, they love each other. They, all the things we think of with marriage are there. And I, sort of relatedly, I think the other, the other part is the sort of equality argument. And I think for young people uh, for whom homosexuality was simply a non-issue in general, right? And, and now you're saying treat them the same as, 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 Mary, as, as, as heterosexuals. I think that was a very convincing argument. And it just took a certain age cohort to kind of come to the place where they were voting and involved to really make, make flip that quickly. I mean, even, even, you know, Republican college students, majority favored, uh, uh, same sex marriage, same sex marriage had more support among the public than did interracial marriage in 1967 when loving was decided. Well, I had a couple of more general questions before we get into the family more deeply. Sure. So first of all, you, you start out with discussing some of the basic terms. So I was wondering if you, we've talked a little bit about this. Could you give a bit more of the distinctions you see between conservatism, classical liberalism, libertarianism, and then this newfangled term, which I confess to find mysterious, neoliberalism? Hey. Uh, all right. Well, let's. Let's take the easy sort of distinction first. Sort of liberalism, uh, classical liberalism and libertarianism. To me, libertarianism is a subset of classical liberalism. Um, it is, uh, and, and I think, by the way, at its best, that's what libertarianism is. Uh, it is uh, a, an offshoot, a growth, a, an evolution of those classical liberal ideas that we date back you know, to the 17th, 18th century, if not farther, to Locke, to people like that, but certainly to later thinkers uh, who developed the idea of sort of, uh, you know, limited government, rule of law, separation of powers. I mean, all the things we think of that sort of are the foundations of modern liberalism in, in the United States and other places. And so uh, the people who, who had those beliefs, and in particular, had a strong belief in the power of the market, uh, I think we're rightly called, we now call classical liberals. Uh, libertarians are the 20th century, 21st century now, version of that, more radical, uh, again, at its best, more radical, uh, more, uh, more skeptical of institutions of power in, in a bunch of ways. Uh, and, and, but within, but still within that tradition, still recognizing the need for for governance, the need for the for some form of the rule of law, uh, and and the best libertarian thinkers now, I think, are ones who use sort of bounce libertarianism off that that classical liberalism. Uh, 
So there's those two. Now if we can, conservatism and neoliberalism. Uh, conservatism lacks a certain confidence and faith, for lack for lack of a better term, in the in, in the spontaneous ordering of culture. For conservatives, uh, they seem to think that one can have uh, a market economy, but a, a, a quote-unquote traditional culture. And I think there's a couple problems with that, one of which is traditional culture is a very fraught term. Whose traditions, whose culture, all those sorts of things. And secondly, uh, as I argue in the book, you can't have a dynamic growing market economy and expect the culture to stay the same. Markets and economics change have uh, worked dialectically with the culture. Uh, my friend Chris Ciabarra will be thrilled to hear me use that word, uh, but they do. And, uh, and so when economic change happens, and we've seen this in the 20th century, when economic change happens, you can't stop the culture from changing. The culture is going to change. Uh, and I think conservatives somehow believe or hope or wish that, that they can have both of those. They can have relatively free uh, economies and, and, and not, no cultural change. And I think often what happens is, and I think this is one way of interpreting the Trump phenomenon, is that when you realize you can't have both of those things and the culture is more important to you, well, guess what? There goes the free market. And you can see that in a lot of the things that Trump and his merry band of followers are, are doing. Okay, neoliberalism. It's mostly a junk word. <laughs> mostly. Okay, that's, that was my impression. So. It's mostly <laughs> a junk word. Um, it is a, it's a word developed by critics of classical liberalism, libertarianism, to, dis to describe it. Developed by the critics. That's one point and problem. But more importantly, it, it doesn't seem to know what it, what it wants or what it is. It, it, uh, for some people, neoliberalism is basically libertarianism. For other people, neoliberalism is the sort of rule of the elite. In, 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 the, in that world, Hillary Clinton is the classic neoliberal, right? The sort of Western-educated uh, American liberal elite. Uh, for other people... Neoliberalism is a is a mindset that does everything according to rational calculation of the marketplace and profit and all these sorts of things. So you just never know what the user means. And, and I frankly wish people would come up with a, another more precise word. And I also think people on our side, as it were, need to stop using terms like cultural Marxism and things like that, which are no better, frankly, than neoliberalism. So what do you think of this take of liberalism? It seems like there are twin errors of being mindlessly culture and tradition bound and, on the other hand, being utopian. And the liberal is trying to preserve what's good in our culture while still making important changes in the way we live to improve our lives. Does that seem like a I fair think that story? seems right, right? And, and what did Popper call it? Uh, sort of, you know, uh, I kept liking on the, his exact phrasing, but, but basically engineering around the edges. Right. And, and even for Hayek, too. Right. The idea that that one could and, and people like Buchanan also, Buchanan more than Hayek, that one could make changes to institutions, sort of marginal changes to institutions that would uh, improve human welfare substantially. If you can find ways to change institutions so that they perform even better. 
right, at, at, at providing that information and incentives uh, to help people learn about their mistakes and so on, all, all to the better. And, and, and the best kind of examples there are how we shouldn't hold property rights as, as kind of once and for all. Uh, technology changes, our conception of what the relevant property rights are, should change. Uh, and we should tinker with them. I mean, electronic music has changed that forever. And, and it would be dumb not to kind of change our understanding of, of, of those property rights, given that the current understanding seems to just create such a mess. Well, I'll bracket that for another day. Okay, yeah. But uh, while, while we're here, one more quick diversion. You write for the website Bleeding Heart Libertarians. So I'm wondering if you could describe what you think that means, as opposed to, is that the same thing as a welfare state libertarian or no. a Niskanen libertarian? Or no. What's, what's, a, no. what's the distinction? Yeah, no. Ugh. Don't get me started on that. Uh, I, I think there are, there are multiple meanings of Bleeding Heart Libertarianism. Uh, I think the, the sort of softest, mushiest version, and probably the one I subscribe to, is that libertarians should orient their uh, theorizing and their, uh, their thinking and their policy proposals around, in sh- around trying to make sure we do what's right for the least well-off in society, right? So too often, historically, libertarians, you know, have focused on things like tax cuts and blah, 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 and talked in terms of, uh, of what it'll do for the rich or the middle class. And we've, we've not talked about policies that really matter for the lives of the poor. So things like occupational licensure or zoning laws that keep poor people from opening businesses, that, you know, talking about that stuff and couching our arguments that way. Well, actually, here's a really good example. There's this, been a story in the news of a, of a midwife who's charged with 92 counts of, of, of practicing medicine without a license. And this woman saves lives. She goes to native reservations and other places and, and delivers babies and saves lives. Why aren't libertarians talking about this? I mean, we are a little bit now. But why isn't this like at the top of our list? This is the state limiting people's economic opportunities. This is the state uh, uh, cracking down on a woman who saves lives uh, and, and, employ- and a job that is a huge employer of women uh, and and and. Uh, and becomes a place uh, to help poor women who are having babies. I mean, it's got everything, and and libertarians should be all over it. And then we wonder, for example, why there's not enough women libertarians. Well, maybe you're not talking about things right that matter to. Them. So for me, bleeding heart libertarianism is that meant is a mentality about thinking about what's important and what our rhetoric is like, and so on. For my philosopher friends, I think it has a stronger connotation which is for them what, what justifies morally libertarian ideas and policies is that they primarily or at least first uh, benefit the least well-off. And, and the real sort of link there is trying to link Rawls and Hayek, right? And, and, and you know, one way of putting bleeding heart libertarianism is uh, making Hayek, making uh, Hayekian arguments for Rawlsian principles, uh, and that's a you know for moral philosophers that's a that's a stronger claim and, and an interesting one. I don't. This is where I say, get to say I don't do moral philosophy. I'm just a just an ordinary economist. But for me, the claim is is in my work 
I want to talk about these issues and I want to talk about them in ways that, that indicate that libertarianism is really, really does help poor people, help vulnerable people, vulnerable people, help people who have been, you know, historically uh, marginalized. Those are all things that are that are true. And I think we just need to emphasize them and talk about them more. I'm all on board with with that sort of thing, talking about government programs that damage people's lives. I guess what makes me personally nervous, and we don't have to talk about this much, but is that it seems like there's a way in which you could stop caring about the rights of the rich people. Like what yeah. about Jeff Bezos? I mean, he yeah. has rights too. And yes. also I, it yeah. seems to, at least some people seem to lead to moving the default more toward government action to help people as opposed to um, liberty, letting people right. help themselves or help right. their communities in a system yeah. of liberty. Are you thinking of things like UBI and stuff like that? Uh, uh, yeah, that would yeah, be, that would yeah. be example. That so thing. look, I mean, a couple of things, I, I think your first point's really important. Um, and I've been, I've written a couple of little pieces recently about the wealth tax and so on. But even there, I think you can frame it as, look, I, I don't give a damn about Jeff Bezos, quad Jeff Bezos. Why I care about his rights is if we let him accumulate his, his fortune the right way, right? Um, the the secondary effects for all of us, including and perhaps especially poor folks, will be incredibly positive. So so for me, I mean, this is you know, you might see this as a danger. Uh, the one substantive, I should say, the one, probably the most important substantive change in my thinking over the course of my thirty plus years as a libertarian is that I'm much more of a consequentialist justifier of rights now than I was. I mean, my early years, I was the natural rights guy for a while and then then sort of not so sure about it and whatever. But now for me, it's what, what justifies Jeff Bezos' right to his property is the fact that if we let him have it, the world's a better place, especially for the least well-off. If it were true that letting him have you know his property rights was just you know socially destructive, then I'd be pretty skeptical about that, about him, why we should, why he should have those rights. So, so for me, that's part of this too. Uh, I think what's interesting is that of the people, who, scholars who post at BHL, there's there's a good number who are anarchists, right? And and people seem to forget that, and they do focus on some of the some of the folks, and they're mostly philosophers, not economists, who who are using the arguments of being hard libertarianism to make the case for universal income and things like that. And, you know, it's hard for me. I don't know. I'm skeptical of UBI, but it's hard to argue against it because it does have this kind of place in the liberal tradition. Um, Despite what some people claim, Hayek did not favor a UBI. What he favored was ensuring that people who could not earn a living in the market would get some sort of flat uh, supplement uh, from from outside the market, which is different than a UBI where everybody, you know, Andrew Yang, everybody gets some. Uh, so again, I think I think part of it is when, when you read the BHLers, you got to recognize who you're reading uh, and, and sort of think about which flavor of BHL they're expressing. 
Well, I think the Ayn Rand part of my thinking is tempted to put on the boxing gloves. Yeah. But I, but I think that uh, I think we should. It's a good time to switch into more of a direct discussion of the family, which is the topic of your book. Sure. And so, just briefly, how did you be? I mean, how did you become interested in this? Because this is not the normal course of an economist. So, what was the background? Oh, there? that's a great, great question. Uh, you know, I was trained as a macroeconomist. And if, I, if in 1995 or something, you told me, you know, in 20 years, you're going to write a book on the family, I would have laughed at you. Uh, it turns out what got me interested in this was, teach, was a teaching opportunity. Uh, I'll keep the story as reasonably short. When I was at St. Lawrence, uh, I taught in and later directed uh, the, uh, the fir- their first year seminar program. And the fall semester of that was team taught. And so I came back into the program after tenure in 1996. And the, the then director of the program paired me up with two young female faculty members, a psychologist and a sociologist. Uh, and so the three of us had to figure something to teach about. It turned out that the two of them were both interested in family questions. Um, and so I'm like, well, all right, I have tenure, they don't. What am I going to do, right? And let's let's teach what works for them and, and complements their research. I really like that idea, by the way, of that kind of pairing. That's that oh, seems unusual oh, to me. Well, wait, it's good. the story gets better. Uh, so, uh, so, so, but even before we had a chance to teach together, one of them left the university, and I wound up teaching the course for a couple years with a with a, a sociologist who was, again, very interested in family. She was, uh, she was kind of the, the archetype lefty sociologist, but, but we got along great and we taught together. Uh, and I learned a ton. Um, you know, she brought readings that I, who knew, right? And we taught with a literature guy one year and then just the two of us another year. So it's going to be the two of us again. And then the director said, well, I think I have a third for you. Uh, another psychologist, psychologist who replaced the other psychologist who left. And so the three of us were going to teach together, but then the sociologist left the university. So it was me and the psychologist, which turned out to be the greatest sort of stroke of luck ever. That faculty member is now uh, one of my, uh, one of my best friends in the world. Uh, We taught together. We taught a course on the evolution of the American family together six or seven times. We taught a senior seminar on the economics and psychology of the family together. So, so we, you know, we clicked both as friends and as uh, teaching partners. And she brought me uh, I, that book couldn't have been written without her. She brought to me a bunch of readings and a whole sort of slate of knowledge that that I wouldn't have known. Interestingly, one of our first meetings. She said we were thinking about the spring, which is sort of more applied and policy oriented. And she looks at me and says, why don't we have them read uh, John Stuart Mill on liberty and think about the relationship between the state and the individual as a way to think about the state and the family. And I'm like, oh, I can do that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. So so it was, you know, uh, all of those things just got me thinking about it. And And as we were going through this class, all I could keep thinking about was, wow, there's a Hayekian story to be told here, and frankly, a sort of libertarian story to be told here that nobody has told before 
Uh, and I just need, I need the time to write it up because there's, there's without question, there's a book here. Um, and no, as you say, the number of books on the family written by libertarians until mine was pretty much uh, three and then one that came out about the same time, right? So uh, there were three, really just three that, that were sort of there already. Um, so this was a niche filler too. So one thing you write is the challenge of building a society is learning to trust strangers. So that leads into what is the role of the family in that? And what are the, is that the essential role of the family or what are the essential roles of the family? I don't, I'm not sure that's the essential role of the family. Uh, what I, what I do think that that is a, that's essential. That's an essential role of, of social institutions, right? We, uh, when you stop and think about how often every day we put our trust in strangers, I mean, well, look, as you know, as, as, as Ari knows, I, I just got out of the hospital yesterday after five days. There's no place where you put your trust. I mean, I saw doctors I'd never seen before. I'm like, okay, you know, what, what are you going to do, right? And what are the signals to you that, that you should trust them? But, you know, you let the repair guy in your house. Why do you let the repair guy in your house? You've never met this guy before. Oh, well, he has a uniform on, says Sears on it. You called Sears. They told you, right? Um, all kinds of things like that. So, so uh, and then we think more sort of narrowly economically. We cut deals all the time, right? We, we buy things from people. We, we do, you know, sort of handshake deals where we trust the other person. So, so uh having a society with institutions that enable us to trust strangers is crucial. The family helps, I think. I mean, part of the socialization of children is to help them to understand that when it's okay to trust strangers and when it's not. Uh, and, and that's, we, we do that all the time. And we, we teach our kids the rituals of, of economic life in ways that do that. We teach them how to order at a restaurant and all these sorts of things. And that's all part of, of per, sort of performing certain roles that, that, that enable us to, to sort of fit ourselves into those, to those social institutions. Well, I guess I should have started at the more fundamental issue, which is this distinction, the, high, the highest, highest distinction between the commercial society and what we might call the personal, fa- the personal society. And so, and then you talk about this link between the two right? and the role of the family in That's preparing people to live in um, two worlds well, at you, once. You, you call it the, the great society, yeah. which of course doesn't have the, right, the it, it has a specific meaning here. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think that's right. And I think um, another way to describe those are the face to face society and the anonymous society. So our, our family, our friends uh, are part of that intimate face-to-face uh society uh in which we we treat each other differently right we 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 treat each other we i mean it's easiest to think about family members this way but we know what family members want right we uh we 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 try to buy them gifts uh for example that that are meaningful uh that's why buying family members or giving family members cash as a gift especially a loved one cash as a gift is sometimes seen as kind of tacky, which is that's, 
that's a sign of anonymity, right? When you give cash, you're just, it's what you do to people you don't you you don't know as well, right? Like the like the, the house cleaners or whatever. Uh, but to give your give an intimate friend or an intimate uh, uh, family member cash sort of says it, it sours feeling because you're supposed to know me better than that, right? You're supposed to be able to know what it is that I want. My my wife is an exceptionally great gift giver. And she has a, a knack for for knowing what it is that people want, um, and that's that's that. So that's part of that world, and and we we spend a lot of time in that world where we treat each other as uh, a, a sort of altruistically, where we where we treat each other as as uh, as as humans did for for centuries, right before before uh, mass civilization, and and then we go out, we go out in the world and we work. Uh, we, we go out in the world and we buy and sell things. And in that world, we don't treat people that way. We can't, right? If, if I go to the restaurant, all right, I can't treat that. I don't sort of think of my waiter as family, right? And, 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 uh, or the chef, the chef or everyone else as family, that they're just going to prepare the meal I want. I don't have to pay for it, right? Suddenly we're at arm's length with them. We're, we're, they are anonymous to us, but we have these institutions that enable us to, to function and to get along with anonymous others as if they were kin. And so I think one of the most important things that family does is to help children navigate the differences between those worlds and how to bridge them, right? How do you, how do you learn who to treat one way and who to treat the other way and why that's important and so on? And we spend a lot of time, I think, socializing our kids uh, even if we don't explicitly think about it that way, into that difference and to understand that difference. And it's really hard. As Hayek points out, we spend a lot of time between the family and the firm, right, where we work. We spend a lot of time in intimate organizations these days. And, and our time that we spent in the anonymous ones is smaller and smaller and smaller. And this, um, I think one of the Hayek points out, that this might make it more difficult for us to appreciate the differences. And I've often wondered whether that's not got something to do with young people's attraction to socialism, that, that they, um, you know, they spend their time, lots of time in the work environment or in the home environment uh, and with friends and so on. And even when we buy things, right, it, we're buying it over Amazon, and it feels different, perhaps, than interacting with the person. I don't know. It's just, that's if I were going to write the book now, I might include something on that. So you seem to buy into the standard line from evolutionary psychology, which seems plausible to me, that it's it's hard for us today because human beings evolved mostly in these small bands, yep. and now we live in this you know huge three hundred and whatever it is sixty million people country where we're all Americans. And there, so there seems to be, you know, there, there's something that has to happen culturally to adapt us to that new environment. Yeah. But I'm wondering, is that, do you think that might be overstated in some, in some ways? Because like Matt Ridley talks about how trade has always been part of the human environment yeah. and how we're, we seem to be have at least some biological, some biologically built in ways of rewarding trade even with strangers. So right. how, how do you navigate that? I think, I think that's probably right. 
Uh, I think the the sort of navigating between two worlds idea, the sort of standard Evo psych one, is really really useful for thinking about this. It may not be right at all on all the details. Um, I do think there's one important difference to make to to note. I, I do certainly humans have always traded. But whether we've organized societies around trade and been able to extend that trade in in significant ways to strangers. And I, and I also wonder what, you know, you have to make sure that the, that the uh, historical examples of, of trade with strangers were genuinely trade and not mutual gift giving, which has a very different t- thing to it, right? So, but I mean, Matt, Matt's right at one level, right, that, that certainly... Tr- Trade is older than markets and capitalism, and all, and all of that, right? And and I think the the sort of Evo Psych insight is really saying, look, we're now in a world that is organized this way, and the organizing principle is trade and anonymity, rather than it being something we encounter, you know, less frequently. Uh, and that that's, I think, uh, important. And I, I do think you see that. I mean, this is one explanation for all this attack on billionaire stuff, right? It, the AOCs of the world and the Bernies of the world are just saying it's unfair. It's unfair that, you know, there should be no billionaires. It's, it's not unusual to see people on the left wanting to, you know, sort of half jokingly, it seems to me, guillotine the billionaires, right? What what good are they? Nobody needs a billion dollars, right? In there is a kind of zero sum, uh, uh, pre modern uh, sense of of that we're all you know we're all brothers and we're all, and we all should treat each other as if we were and and what possible gain could there be to being a billionaire without seeing the unintended consequences and so on? So I do think the how do I want to put it the the sort of uh, mental uh, proclivity, right? The, the sort of our, our, our mental, you know, the highest phrase moral instinct is probably right here, right? Our moral instinct often is is the world of the savanna uh, of, of small groups of intimacy. And, and we apply that as that's our moral thinking when it comes to the modern world. And, and it, it does, I think we see it, I would describe it as a tension, right? A tension that modern humans have to somehow figure out and overcome. One way to set up your views is to talk about how conservatives tend to look at the family and how progressives tend to look at the family and what's wrong with those views because they're sort of in competition with your view of the family. Yeah. Conservatives, again, want want to uh, preserve... Uh, a view, uh, a perception of the family that while it might have been true briefly, certainly was not nearly as universal or as prevalent uh, in time or through time as conservatives think. And so they're trying to hold on to a past uh, that, that doesn't exist or didn't exist or, 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 or can't exist. And by the way, I think that's where the, where the David Brooks piece kind of comes into this uh, as, as well, the one in the Atlantic that everyone's talking about. Uh, 
on the other hand, right, uh, progressives, radical progressives think you can live without the family. Uh, the woman who was the director of, of that first year seminar program at St. Lawrence uh, also is a scholar of the family and, and wrote a, a pretty good little book called Queer Family Values, which I read while, you know, and cited in the book. And I told her once, I said, I said, Val, I don't, I don't know. Half the time I want to hug this book. Half the time I want to throw it against the wall, right? And, and she chuckled and said, "Well, it looks like I've done my job then, haven't I?" <laughs> um, and sort of she documents the folks who would just think that the family isn't necessary. And 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 what and the 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 path I'm trying to walk is to say, yeah, the family, the, the progressives are wrong. The family is necessary, but the conservatives are wrong in thinking that there's only one kind of family uh, that can do the job or that, uh, or that, that, that kind of family can be preserved today. And so uh, what, what we need to talk about when we talk about families are uh, we need to have an understanding of what it means to do the job. What is it we want families to do? And then secondly, we need to be uh, open-minded about the variety of family forms uh, that can that can satisfy that uh, th- you know those criteria, and I do think one of the biggest mistakes that people make talking about the family is letting the perfect uh, be the be the enemy of the better or the good. Everybody wants a perfect family; almost no one has one. Raising kids, getting them out the door, ha- having a family in that sense is much more like pass-fail than A, B, C, D, E, F. Um, it's okay to make trade-offs that, you know, give you a, that would grade you as a B parent, right, or a B family. If that's in your circumstances, if that's what you have to do to make sure your kids reach adulthood and, and, and are, are productive members of society. I think too many conservatives think that any kind of trade-off there is a problem, and I think sometimes progressives, too, think that. But progressives want to solve it by sort of wiping out the family. And, and conservatives want to solve it by, by it's not clear, uh, but by, you know, uh, perhaps, in, you know, enforcing divorce law better or, or all kinds of things one can think of. So you talk about the family as continually evolving. And yet there seems to be three main stages of the family that you discuss. So there's sort of the pre-agricultural, so basically the evolutionary past for most of it than the agricultural area or era mm-hmm. but still pre-industrial and then the modern era which is post-industrial or still during the industrial revolution so for now let's talk about the first two of those stages so what do you see as the main transition between sort of our ancient past and then the agricultural past even in our ancient past right uh marriage marriage existed uh, it was often uh, parental choice and that young people didn't have uh, much in the way of consent. Uh, and it certainly wasn't about love. Uh, it was about, in the pre-agricultural world, it, it was often about defense and, and building community networks, right? When you marry someone, suddenly you have this whole other group of people with, a, with an investment in, in you. Uh, and that's the great part of grandchildren, right? Well, grand, grandchildren have two families who, who desperately want to preserve that grandchild's life. And so in a world of war making and all that kind of stuff, 
right? Marriage was really important for building those coalitions and so on. Um, I think what, what happened over time is as uh, humans discovered agriculture and settled down and turned to trade, uh, trade began to overcome war uh, and, and the ability to grow our own food uh, helped a lot here too, uh, gave us some stability. And in that world, marriage was really an economic activity. You, you got married to bring someone in who could help on the farm. Uh, when I give a talk on this stuff, I, I look at the class and say, you know, today uh, our, our, our sort of uh, ideal female form has to do, you know, with, with our, our particular aesthetics of, 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 of uh, curviness and so on. I said, but back then, right, it was like, wow, look at those shoulders. You know, she can pull a plow or, or then, frankly, look at those hips. She can have lots of kids. And in the world of agriculture, um, that was that became the key is 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 could you bear children uh, because children were the 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 work, you know, became the labor on the farm. Uh, and and it's a lot easier to make your own labor and more fun to make your own labor than it is to hire it. So we, we saw lots of, you know, we see, we see large family sizes um, and we see mom and sometimes other ex you know, extended family uh, working in the fields as much as they can. Uh, the, the family was an economic institution with dad as CEO. Uh, so marriage mattered a lot. It mattered for your economic survival. And this is also why the community took an interest in who you married. Um, if you married someone who couldn't make the farm work, the threat was not just to you who owned the farm, but potentially to the whole community if you were an important source of food supply. So, uh, you know, community members had, a, had an interest in who was marrying whom. What's also interesting about marriage at this time is it's, going, it's undergoing a another kind of transition. Uh, while the parents and the community had an interest, Consent was becoming more important, uh, and the belief that people should marry who they wanted to marry uh, was was ascendant. That's a different question from why people got married, and those two often get confused. I think today we think that love and consent are like one thing, but you can separate those. You can choose who you marry, but marry them for reasons other than love, and I think that's that's a lot of what was what was happening uh, was happening back back then. It, it, one of the movies that illustrates this distinction between the sort of older and modern marriage perception of marriage, and, and it's uh, set in the modern in modern times, uh, is my big fat Greek wedding, right? Where where you know the the, the Greek family has its very old fashioned sense of of marriage and can't believe that their daughter is going to marry this guy who is not Greek and, and all, you know, and is choosing and is choosing to marry for love. There's, there's one scene with Lainey Kazan and the daughter and, 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 uh, and, and the mom asks her, says, 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 do you really love him? And the daughter says, oh, mom, I, I really love him. And the mom says, oh, Tula, go, go eat something, right? Like loving him is a silly reason to, to get married. And that's, and that's the way it was for a long time. Uh, now, of course, we have love and consent, but certainly the, the, the move to from, from pre-agriculture to agricultural uh, was, was a move towards the marriage being an economic, families being an economic 
uh, uh, institution, uh, and and an increase in consent as part of marriage. Well, one of the things I found interesting about your discussion of the agricultural era of marriage was the explanation of how social rules and religious rules governing marriage and sex very often had a lot to do with transfer of property, the yeah. productivity of the family, yeah. not creating a burden for the broader community. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Do you yeah. want to give a couple of examples? Well, of- uh, I, I was just going to say those those old guys weren't dumb, right? You know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if these were the examples you're thinking of, but certainly uh, all the religious the religious uh, Catholic Church's prohibition on adoption, for example, was a way to make sure that that uh, women who died uh, died childless would pass their money back onto the church. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, so we saw a number of kind of things like that, uh, where, where the particular uh, rules and certainly, uh, you know, rules against, uh, extramarital sex, for example, were all designed to make sure everyone knew who the, who the father was and, uh, and, and that made the property passing and all that, uh, uh, sensible, uh, Jews allowed for what was called leveret marriage, which is if you uh, if you're married to a man and he died, uh, you had the an obligation to marry his brother. That was another way to keep the the property in the family. Uh, the non-Jewish Christian uh, denominations rejected that idea, again for reasons that probably have to do, have to do with the the sort of interests of the church. So so yeah, there's all kinds of stories in there about about how the rules of marriage and family and sex um, were functionalist, right, in some sense. The people who, who created them knew that they would have uh, implications for sort of social structure and how families evolved and, and so on. And I think that that, you know, that's a good example to go back to our earlier conversation of 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 traditions that we might jettison because the conditions that made them work are no longer there. So one of the lines that struck me in your book is the following. Peasant husbands were much more likely to call for medical help when their cattle got (laughs) ill than when their wives did. Because one could always find a new wife cheaply, but a good cow or bull would be very expensive to replace. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. (laughs) So that's certainly... uh, It's striking. Transitioning to the modern family, did capitalism create romantic love? Qualified, yes, right. I mean, uh, I would just the way I would phrase it is, capitalism made it possible to marry for love and for that to be successful for the first time in human history. That that's the way I think I would put it. I mean, the the, the emotion of love and romantic love existed pre-capitalism, but what it but it always existed. Uh, uh, externally to marriage, right? The, the 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 woman you were married to was not the woman you were romantically in love with, and you can look at Shakespeare plays and all these other examples, right? Of of men who were clearly what we would today recognize as in romantic love with women who were not their wives. Loving your spouse was a consequence of marrying them, not the reason. And if I can do another movie here. Um, Fiddler on the Roof has a scene where the the wife is asked uh, 
you know, do, do you do you love him, her husband? And she says, she says, I've learned to love him, right? And and that's really an interesting response, isn't it? That that you're married for 25 years and over 25 years, you share all of these things. You share the kids and the trials and the tribulations, and you take care of each other. And you know, you might not have known the person when you married them, but but now you recognize that they're caring for you and you, and you come to love them. I think that's the, that's the older model. The newer model was no love is the reason you marry someone. Um, and, and it, and in some sense we had to be able to uh, afford it for lack of a better term. Uh, when once the family was no longer centrally the production unit, when, when people, mostly men, but not, not always went out to work uh, and where the where the household was not the major, at least, site of income earning, suddenly everything looks different. You don't have to marry a, a you know a woman who can push a plow, and she doesn't have to marry a man who's got great tracts of land or whatever. Right? It has all kinds of fields. Uh, that, that doesn't that's not important anymore. Um, you can you can get to know the person, and you can decide. I want to spend. I like spending time with this person. Uh, and and go from there. Uh, children suddenly look different. They're no longer economic assets. They are transitioning to economic liabilities. And one of the most, you know, universal demographic facts is that industrialization and urbanization reduce family size. And so, uh, you know, you don't have to go throw condoms at people to get them to have fewer kids. You just have to make them richer. Uh, and we saw in, in, the, in the industrializing world, family size began to drop. And this also enabled parents to invest more in the children they had. This is Gary Becker's sort of, you know, uh, fewer but better kids. Uh, and, and do things like educate them and keep them out of the workforce until they were 15 or 16 or whatever it might be. I mean, you couldn't, you know, in, in a time before that, you could afford your kids to not be producing. But when dad's earning enough at the factory, uh, you can do this. And and originally, of course, early on, it was dad and mom working the factory and the kids working the factory. But rising wages um, brought the kids home, then mom home, uh, and enabled dad to, to, to support that family mostly by himself. Uh, and so this also brings on this whole new age of, of kids where, where we treat kids. We, we sort of shelter them from the external world. We build this... Uh, this, this world for them inside the household. And then we also get out of this, this sort of Victorian look at motherhood uh, uh, and, 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 uh, and the sort of uh, ideal of femininity as being connected to the house and taking care of the house where, where masculinity and men are out there in public sight economically and politically. And so, you know, by the late 1900s, early 20th century, we begin to see a lot of these gender splits uh, that, that have, plagued us since. By the time we get into the to the industrial type marriage and it's marriage for love, there's nothing you wouldn't do for your spouse. And I should note also that was associated with a decline in domestic violence. A um, couple of ways to think about it. The big one being if, if you had publicly proclaimed your love for someone and then started mistreating them, this sort of the ability of the community and the public to call you on that was was greater, right? If 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 the wife was just another farm implement, right? 
you know, again, doesn't justify it, but but you can see why the community wouldn't react to it the same way. And and so we start to see around this time more depictions in literature and in art of 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 the negativity of of mistreating one's wife. Uh, takes a long time for that to and still ongoing uh, to really disappear from the culture. But but love marriage for one of the good things about marriage for love is it started us down that road. So I want to now set up the comparison or maybe conflict between your approach to the family and the article that you mentioned earlier by David Brooks in the Atlantic on the family. And I want to start, I want to just kind of make that a topic for a little while. So you write positively of an increase in respect for the individual in the realm of marriage and the family. But if I take David Brooks point correctly, he's essentially arguing that too much individualism has undermined the family and the nuclear family, which you talk about, is now under severe stress. And now what we need are new communal forms of family and government solutions to help ex- to help support those communal forms of family. So I want to, but if you, if you dig down into the details of what you're saying, there seems to be also some important agreements. Yes. So wh- where, where are the disagreements and where are the yeah. agreements and which side of that is strong? I, I, I started reading that article with much trepidation worried that it was going to be really bad. And it's not. It's actually pretty good. As I told some friends, I don't think he's wrong on many facts. He's just, he puts a different spin on them than I would. And so I, I do think, I think he's right to say that the, nucle- the nuclear family, uh, I wouldn't say is under attack or anything, but the nuclear family fi- is finding it much harder to get along in the 21st century for a variety of different reasons. And uh, you know, the one thing I'd say is the same forces of individual choice that made that created the nuclear family are yes, are the ones that 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 are making it more difficult, but they're also the same ones that are enabling people to reconstruct different kinds of families. He cites, in fact, Kath West, Weston's book uh, "Families We Choose," and that book that book's from the nine ninety five, I think. Um, but that was about sort of gay and lesbian families in particular, but not just them. And the idea that people were forming families in ways that had never been seen before, and I think I think we're seeing that. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I'm, well, well, that I, was to inter- to, that was one of my questions. Yeah. I'm wondering if David Brooks has too narrow a view of what a quote nuclear family is, because you seem to have right. a little broader idea of what right. a nuclear family could be. I, and I'm is not that even part of it. Yeah, I'm not even sure I like that term nuclear family. I mean, the 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 term comes from the fact that it re, that that in the 50s and 60s and whatever, we reduced the family down to the barest to the to the minimum, mom, dad, kids as opposed to the extended families of of, of years before. So, it's it's just it's not a great term. I think the 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 way of reframing the question is uh, and but Brooks is right by the way about one really important thing. That nuclear family was a historical anomaly from about the end of World War II, you know, until until sometime in the last, whatever, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, it's never been a universal form. It's not right. So he's, he's I, I'm glad to see him make that point. The question now is, are the families that people are forming now that are not that 
quote, traditional nuclear family, capable of fulfilling the functions we expect families to perform. Brooks doesn't have a very clear discussion of what those functions might be. And I think that would be a, a, a next step would be to say, okay, but, but before, we, before we say these, these other kinds of families that people are creating are bad, and certainly before we say, and here's all the government programs we need to make sure that they're not bad, uh, let's, let's really ask if they're bad, right? I mean, and he, at one point, to my recollection, I read it a few days ago, he does say, yeah, sure, there's some single parent families that, that do well. Yeah, David, there are, right? And, and so again, par, par, part of my, when I'm reading that piece, a couple things stick in my head, which is one, is he, is he expecting perfection and then criticizing families, criticizing these other these variety of family forms for not being perfect? And if so, right, how, how do we assess the trade-offs? One of the most important things in my book, I think, um, is, is I tried so hard to make the point that when we think about family breakup, we have to include the utility of the parents as well as the utility of the children. We're simply so, you know, when we hear the families breaking up, the divorce is happening, everyone says, oh, what about the kids? What about the kids? And the kids should absolutely take sort of first order consideration. But but do you really, you know, is it really better for the kids to stay together, number one? And what's the, what's the cost to the parents? There's huge gains to parents from divorce oftentimes. And I'm not even thinking about, you know, an abused, an abused spouse or something like that. Just getting out of this incredibly tense situation, which, by the way, is good for the kids, too. So, so trade-offs, 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 right? And, and, I, and I wonder whether Brooks is really thinking carefully about the trade-offs of these new kinds of families and whether they might do just fine. They might not be what we think is ideal, but they might do just fine in raising kids and the other things we think families uh, should, should be doing. That's an empirical question. There's some psych literature and social literature on it. And that's kind of what I'd like to see, you know, people talking about here is of the multiple f- forms of family that we're now going to be dealing with in the 21st century, which ones work better than others and which ones don't work well enough, whatever that is, and which ones do. Well, one of the things that I was that I found interesting in Brooks' article toward the end is he was talking about new ways that people are finding to merge their families and have yeah. an extended kin. So yeah. he mentions sort of developments where single moms will cohabitate basically and help so they so they have this extended network. Right. But I wonder if Brooks is making a mistake in drawing this line between individualism. And this sort of communalism, I don't think he uses that term, but I think that's what he means, versus the way I would look at it is, well, if we are choosing the communities we're living in, that's an aspect of individualism, if you conceive it correctly. Uh, Because, you know, I mean, this whole thing of being atomized individuals has always just been kind of a slur. And we've always, I mean, I, I consider myself an individualist in the context of this highly communal structure of my family. And I don't see why that's fundamentally different if, you know, I, if two families lived in the same household or so, which I know people like that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Exactly right. And, and it's, you know, again, that, that's kind of what I, earlier I said, you know, this, the, the same individual choices that, that have disrupted the nuclear family 
are the same individual, same individualism, right? That's enabling people to conceive of these of these interesting solutions. And and I think those, I think you know, the two single moms living together. I think the the uh, you know building houses that that have space for uh, parents. To, I know lots of friends who have a parent or two parents you know, living with them and it solves childcare problems and all kinds of things. And, and, you know, if you can do it, I, I wouldn't want, you know, I love my dad. I love my in-laws, but no, uh, I don't, you know, I don't want them living with me for a bunch of reasons. Uh, but if, but if you're okay with it, right, it's great. And and when, uh, and, and that's, I think f- fine. And I don't think it's like you say, I don't think it's some kind of anti-individualist communalism, um, it's striking to me that he cites the the families we choose book, which seems to simply say, "Look, we we now have the this sort of ability to liberate ourselves from any particular form of family, and 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 choose the ones that work for us." Yeah, great. That seems to me to be, and I think, by the way, Ari, this is a good example of where liberalism and conservatism uh, may be split. Or at least you want to, want to see things differently. It seems to me the liberal looks at this and says, classical liberal looks at this and says, you know, like you said, fantastic, right? Go go find people who help you solve problems uh, and, and, you know, create an, a, a, a way of living together that does that. And, and if a conservative looks at it and goes, well, that's a funky new family. And, and certainly that's not individualism because we know individualism is the nuclear family, <laughs> You know, okay, let's call it something else, right? No, right? I mean, what gave us, as we've been talking about, what gave us the nuclear family was the rise of individualism, right? Yeah, uh, for sure. But it, but, but it was a family we chose then, right? In a way that that these are just ongoing evolutions of how we do that. Um, I, I just think people, especially conservatives, are so attached to mom, dad, and kids being the ideal that they that anything else is so different that it demands some kind of explanation. Well, and to Brooks' credit, he unlike some other conservatives, he he definitely seems open to yep. new ways of doing things, which is the part of of his article that struck me and impressed me. Yeah, no, I think that's right, and 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 that's Brooks has always been a more interesting conservative for for those kinds of reasons. Um, and that's kind of why when I read it, I thought, yeah, this is, this is all right. But again, I, I disagree with some of his interpretations, but, but he's got the basic story right. And I think, I think he does. I think he just, I think he wants to sell that story as a kind of conservative story of decline, as opposed to a liberal story of ongoing evolution. Maybe that's the best way to think about it. So we're, about a fifth of the way into the new century. So I don't know if you can call it the new century anymore. And so you talk a little bit about the continuing evolution of the family with things like more opportunities to work from home, telecommuting and such. So if the, is there a brief way to, to summarize where you think the family is headed now and where you, where you see it headed in the coming decades? Uh, other than what we just outlined. Yeah. Uh, I do think that what the, the continued... Uh, growth in gender equality is is always at the center of these conversations, and I suspect that what we're going to, if you add up sort of 
the push for gender equality, if you tack onto that the the telecommuting type work from home stuff and people go into the office twice a day, I I, I think what we're going to see are just these sort of all of these idiosyncratic ways that couples are going to form families and solve the problems that families have to solve of, of daycare and so on, right? So uh, one of the things that I would say, I think we're going to see even more idiosyncratic families where where the particular ways they organize themselves. Uh, I think the two single moms is, thing is an example of that, but but also even a more you know nuclear family looking couple figuring out work and 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 kids and all these kinds of things are going to be solutions are just going to be all over the place, uh, and that I think is uh, interesting sort of theoretically in that that there that there won't be sort of a family model to sort of point to. But I also think it makes policy really, really hard. If you look at all you know, the sort of uh, folks running for office who want to say, oh, we need, you know, we need national daycare or, or we need uh, uh, this, that, or the other to help working moms, right? Well, wait a second. There's a lot of working dads, number one. But more interestingly, there's a lot of families where mom and dad both work, sometimes from home, sometimes not. And they've got the childcare thing figured out. It's complicated, but they figure it out. And 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 other people have their 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 parents living with them who provide childcare. So I think just we're going to see uh, more of this splintering and idiosyncratic family forms, uh, which I think is great. Uh, and 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 that's you know whatever Brooks wants to call it. I'd call it uh, uh, kind of liberalization of the family. Um, and, and it lets people solve their own problems with their own local knowledge. And it, it casts a kind of Hayekian uh, uh, doubt over the ability of any kind of one-size-fits-all policy to deal with family issues in the 21st century. Well, you might find interesting my personal situation. So we have a, my wife and I have a four-year-old. And my wife is very successful in her career. So she is holding down the eight to five, and that's going really well for her. So that's kind of our emphasis financially. And I'm doing more of the homeschooling dad route. Um, so we do things like, like right now, my wife's mother is watching the four-year-old. And uh, another homeschool mother and I meet at the museum often and we'll trade off. So one of us will work for a while and the other one will watch the kids. So I'm seeing, I'm seeing these kinds of alternative arrangements rising up even in my own life, which I find yep. interesting. Yeah, but I think about, you know, my... I've got three younger brothers with kids uh, of various ages, uh, and the one with the school age kids. They're in a more sort of traditional relationship, but but even now, my 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 brother is trying to start a his own. Uh, he's a lawyer, start his own business out of the home, right? And that that's very liberating in some sense, right? It, it makes him available in ways he wouldn't be otherwise. But you know, it comes with risk. So, so I think all of these, all of these things, if you're basing policy on a, on an assumption that all the families you think the policy will apply to are more or less the same, they're not, and that's going to be a problem for the policy. So, one last note before we get into some more uh, personal questions on the family is you have a, a nice discussion of 
rights and the interrelationship between the rights of the parents and the rights of the children. And I, th- I think I agree with you completely on these points, as opposed to some libertarian approaches, which basically see parents as owning children, which I think we both agree that's not a, not tenable uh, theoretically or practically. And so I just wanted to throw that in. Did, did you have any, do you want to, do you have any comments about that just to summarize your position? Yeah. I mean, that was my sort of critical response to Rothbard and others. Uh, and, and I'm not sure there's much to add. I think you, I think you got it pretty much right. I think there's, there's complexities there in terms of how, how parents acquire these sort of, uh, uh, rights and responsibilities towards their children. And I think that that's the key to me, which is the act of claiming parenthood over a child gives you certain rights as a parent, uh, but it also imposes upon you certain responsibilities. And I think the Rothbardians, at least Rothbard himself, certainly neglects the responsibility part. Uh, and then there's other, there are other, you know, more radical libertarians who say it's all children's rights uh, and want to throw out the, the, the parental rights part of it. But I think it's, I think it's important. Uh, I, I guess here's what I'll say. Anyone, one of the problems in libertarianism is that a couple of our most important thinkers never had kids. And, and especially Rothbard and Rand. And I think it's reflected in the substance of their beliefs and in the way and then who gets attracted to those beliefs and why. And I think once you've had a child, once you've looked at a vulnerable infant, how you can believe anything but that you have rights over this infant and responsibilities over this child, I don't know how you can see it any other way. But but if you've never had that experience, maybe you can. Yeah, it certainly is a unique sort of relationship, this parent-child it, it relationship. It is. And, and let, me, let me make one other point here, too. You know, pe- people will say of libertarianism, oh, it, it can't handle children, right? That, that, that it has no theory of kids and it's a theory about rational adults and blah, blah, blah. And my response to that is, would you please name me one political philosophy who has, that has solved the problem of children? Libertarianism is no different than every other one. Children mess everything up, right? And, 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 and you just can't, uh, they make political philosophy harder for everyone. So this isn't libertarianism. This is all of us. Well, I think you draw the right line in terms of government in saying that there should be a high bar in interfering yes. with parents yes. and their their relationship with their children. Yeah. But at the same uh, time, yeah, and I think this is what makes libertarians nervous is that seems to open the door to a non-trivial role for the state. So there was just a story in Colorado about social services taking this kid from a family because yeah. they thought the kid was being abused. But in fact, the kid just had this strange disease that was sh- – that they interpreted it as signs of abuse, but it wasn't at all. Yep. Yep. So you get, it's a, you know, these are, these become very difficult issues practically. They do. I used to think environmental issues were the hardest, but this is exactly where you are, is, is, are, are the hard part. And I, I challenge my, I mean, I am if on the right day anyway, an anarchist, but I challenge my, my anarchist libertarian friends to come up with a, with an answer here, right? How would you, how would you protect children from, 
that kind of situation or protect children from abuse or whatever without the state. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I have not heard a, I've yet to hear a story that's persuaded me. So one thing I wanted to discuss just on a totally different topic is that we're both fans of the band Rush and recently lyricist and drummer for the band Neil Peart died from cancer, which was really shocking to Rush's fans because he was very private about this. So you've written about Rush and so I thought I'd ask you, what in Rush appeals to you? Why are you a Rush fan? Uh, um, I think a few things. I mean, I think early on, uh, certainly the lyrics and the individualism of the lyrics were a big draw. Uh, a, a deep respect for their musical talent, uh, the complexity of their music, the the uh, you know, they never sound alike from album to album, and I think that's great. They are they are the living embodiment of progressive rock, in the sense that 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 they have never really done the same thing twice. They're incapable. They were incapable of doing that, and I think that that um, for me that's a that's a really uh, important value. Uh, all those are important values, right? To sort of, uh, you know, ha- have the chops and, and 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 use them in different ways. Uh, so those those are certainly key. But I actually think, and you know, the, the music over the years has just been uh, inspirational, and very much the case uh, that that their music has been the soundtrack of my life. All all of those things about Rush are true. But I think the most important thing over the years uh, is the way in which they have been a role model for how to have a career of uh, integrity and success and acknowledgement of your peers without ever selling out, without ever uh, feeling like you're, you're you're, you're doing something because someone else wanted you to do it. They've always done what they've wanted to do. Uh, as Alex Lifes once said, said we, we're not in the mainstream, but we're walking along the shore, right? Uh, so they've always been there and they've always been around. Um, they've said, we're going to do what we want to do. And, if, and, and we hope the fans will come along with us. And most of us have. Uh, and that's a role. That's, that's a, that's how to have a good, a good career and a good life, it seems to me. Um, and for me, when I sort of recognized that a number of years ago, I started, I wouldn't say modeling my choices after them, but at least being conscious of that, which is for me, right, I'm an Austrian school economist. I'm, I'm not in the mainstream, but walking along the shore. Uh, how, do you, how do you do that work? How do you have a career of of integrity and uh, a career of success. That's also a career of integrity. And they showed us how to do that. Uh, and I don't know if you know the, the scene, cause it never made it on TV, but the scene from the, their induction into the rock and roll hall of fame from that event uh, where Jan Wenner is introducing all the inductees. Have you ever seen this? And he gets to rush and, and all he says is from Toronto, and the place just explodes. 
And yeah, I did see that. Yeah. It's to me, you know, that's every, you know, every critic who, you know, who called them every name for however many years, uh, that's the shut up right there. And, and that is an amazing moment. Uh, and more, made more amazing because if you watch it, the people who are standing at first are the whole big group of fans in the, you know, in the way back and the musicians down front. It's the musicians. It's Morello. It's the guys from Foo Fighters. It's all these, you know, folks who, who like, if, if you're Rush, that's what you want, right? That's what you would, uh, that, that is the, you know, not justification, but that's the recognition of a whole career. And I think that part of them for me is, is the thing that's become the most important over time, which is they, they put out, put down a roadmap of how you do what they did. And I think it's a roadmap you can import into any, anything in life. Well, your webpage is at sghorwitz.com. Yep. And I see that there's a lot of your writings listed there. Is there any yep. other important way for people to learn more about your work and follow what, uh, you, what you're doing? Yeah, a couple different ways. Um, you can follow me on Facebook. I actually have some friend spots open, but you can follow me on Facebook. That's a that's a good way. Any of my sort of professional stuff uh, is, is public. Uh, I'm actually on Twitter at SG Horwitz, uh, but, but I'm not. Uh, Twitter is a dumpster fire, so I don't like play, but but I do use it as an opportunity to push new stuff. Uh, I write a bunch now for libertarianism.org. Uh, where else can you find me these days? Um, and oh, and at EconLib uh, as a guest guest poster there too. So you know wherever wherever whatever I write, whoever will take it. Uh, those are all good places to. To find me and and frankly a good a good google will turn up lots of old stuff too thanks so much for being on the show i really appreciate it my pleasure this these were uh this was a really good conversation and uh and i really appreciate the time you took with the book to to ask really good questions our guest today has been stephen horwitz author of hayek's modern family classical liberalism and the evolution of social institutions for more please see ariarmstrong.com <laughs>